Welcome to the Rooted Healing Podcast, where we seek to deepen our kinship with the living world and with the great mystery that runs through us. This is a space where stories heal with words that weave us closer to our wild and daring natures, bringing together the expansive minds, topics, and ideas that help us heal, reimagine, and co-create the world we wish to thrive in. Your best teacher is probably not a human being. It's probably the animal, the plant, the invasive species that's right outside your door who are moving in ways that are outside the dominant anthropocentric paradigms. They may have the best information on how to combat capitalism and colonialism, not another human being who's already been inculcated with these concepts. Sophie Strand is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling and ecology. But she's written that it would probably be more authentic to call her a new troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. And her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, came out in Britain right after recording this and it had already been out in America. So it's out now and I have a copy here and I can't recommend it enough. In fact, I'm going to read a snippet to you right now. In rewilding the myths of the masculine, we must understand that myths were originally situated in particular ecosystems. Just as mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of above-ground mycelia, so are myths the above-ground manifestations of specific ecologies. Myths are momentary eruptions of beings that have been growing for millennia underground. I love this snippet because it reminds me of Jeremy Narby's research with the Ashlan Inca and Conibo tribes of Peru that reveal this profound overlap between ancient indigenous intuited experiential knowledge and recent Western scientific discovery. I mean, he's talking about the origin of life, DNA, and how myth and story is just another language to amount to the same knowledge, the same deep ancient wisdom that science can lead to. And I, I think of how the Shipipo sing these Icaros that are coming from the plants that then are stitched or painted into these beautiful patterns that happen to be the molecular biology of the plants that are involved. I just think it's magical, this sort of mythic, symbolic story landscapes and how they actually are rooted in our ecosystems. And so this is Sophie's work. And her eco-feminist historical fiction, Reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, will also be out this year. Her books of poetry include Love Song to the Blue God and Those Other Flowers to Come and The Approach. So she shares the culmination of eight years of research into myth, folklore and the history of religion, leading us through the forgotten landscapes and hidden secrets of these familiar myths. I am beyond delighted to have Sophie on the show. She is so mycelial in the way she can articulate and connect such complex ideas and perspectives into story and conversation. We talk about the renaissance of animism, rewilding our cycles and selves into the landscape, redefining health or healing through the lens of having chronic illness. We also touch on queer ecology and the stories and the motivation that drove her to write her wonderful books also reflecting on those books in our lives that can actually save us from the deepest depths and before we dive in I do want to read one more snippet because it really reminds me of the great cosmic mother which I've probably mentioned at least three or four times on this podcast already it's one of my favorite resources it's a book by Barbara Moore and Monica Shu. and this part Sophie articulates so well and it's just giving an example of what it means to root, reroute myths and stories. How can a monotheistic sky god rule the dirt, the fungi, the funky and the sexy reality of embodied life if he is always hovering above it? How can he understand the millions of different stories that constitute an ecosystem if he insists there is only one story and one god? Monotheism is trapped by its attachment to a mythic monologue. Sky gods think sunshine, abstraction and ascension are the answer to everything. But the problem with the sun is that if it isn't tempered by darkness and rain and decay, it tends to create deserts instead of biodiverse ecosystems. We are ground people who have been worshipping sky stories not properly suited to our relational existence rooted in the land. 
Spore-related storm gods come from the ground, like us, so they understand our soil-fed, rain-sweetened existence. They bring the wisdom of the underworld and lift it into the sky, only to pour it back into the leaves, the grasses, the valleys, soaking back into the dirt from which they originally emerged. Sky gods encourage linear thinking. Spore gods teach us that everything is cyclical. Yes, sometimes we must ascend like a spore on the wind, but it is also important to descend back into our bodies and back into the earth. And this is drawing upon new science that shows that spores, the billions of spores that are entering the atmosphere, play a, a vital role in creating the clouds and creating the ecosystems with forests and rain, the water forms around the spore and so the spore almost becomes a sort of nucleus in this water droplet and this is what's creating this atmosphere. So the idea of these spore gods is rooted in the actual manifestation of this cyclical nature and reflecting back on how these stormy skies were so powerful to our ancestors and so godly. And so if we can reroute those storm gods into their spore origins. Just think how powerful that would be for our spiritual perspective. So that's enough talking from me, but I just couldn't not read those snippets in this introduction. So I hope you enjoy this episode with the wonderful Sophie Strand. I feel that we are in a renaissance of animism, which you have acknowledged as an over-determined word. So I'd love for you to paint a sense of what animism is to you and perhaps how stories can become more animate and how you're embedding that within your writing. Hmm. I think that with animism, especially animism as being um, resurrected by a largely white Eurocentric um, population always runs the risk of becoming a homogenizing universalism that then has a colonial um, side project to, you know, pretend that everything is alive in the same way. And I, I think that it's important to realize that animism is, is an umbrella term for many different belief systems across thousands of years, different geographies and different indigenous paradigms. And so the differences are, are what make animism diff interesting to me. I believe in an animism of, of prickling differences of, you know, it's the gradient between the top of the mountain and the valley that carves the stream into being. It's the gradients that create the velocity of life. Um, and that I believe stones are alive, but they're alive differently than me. So that keeps me asking questions, keeps me curious and keeps me humble. Um, I also believe in an animism of material, a kind of new materialist sense that even the matter that we think is being non-agential is incredibly bumptious and, and doing quite a lot of work within our culture and with our, within our dynamic um, uh, biosphere. So, for example, I believe in, you know, the, the Mesozoic ferns that have been churned into exhaust are agential and alive, that I believe that um, uh, the plastic in our blood are making our, us chimerical beings, making us holobiont beings that are much larger and stranger than just the human. So I think I have a kind of strange take on animism. And I also always feel very hesitant about using that term these days because it can become a kind of erasure of the texture and the differences in, in different indigenous paradigms. That animism has to always be rooted in place, responding to context. Um, and yeah, maybe thinking also about the second part of your question in terms of story. Um, we think of story as being an artifact of human culture, but I like to say that stories don't belong to humans. Humans are born into stories that are moving at scales so much longer than a human lifetime that it's hard to even see, that we are hardly the main characters. We're not even the sidekicks. We're in deep time stories. We're in evolutionary stories that are much larger than us. And that is a very helpful frame, especially in ecosystem management and all of these ways in which we think we can manage our environments. If we have such a limited sensory apparatus, such short comet streak lives, how can we possibly think we can manage the stories, the deep time stories of the earth? Mm, humans are born into stories. I love that. 
I love what you're saying about animism. It gives me the sense of moving consciousness through so many things in such nuanced ways. And that's often a stereotypical response from people. Oh, so our rock's alive. But when we redefine what consciousness is beyond behavioral ability and association, when we see all life as fundamentally alive and ensouled or inspirited, then yes, the world becomes so much more awe-filled. You've written about animals acting as far more effective role models than gurus, which is something I deeply resonate with. And I'd love to hear about the furry or feathered personalities who've mentored you and how we might all enter an apprenticeship with our more than human kin. I mean, if you look back at many different folkloric and shamanic, and that word is also complicated, but many different spirit worker or shamanic or bardic traditions, one of the initiatory steps is thinking like other beings, being like other beings, you know, Taliesin, American, we see the character of Merlin, we see this in many different cultures, is in order to become someone who speaks for the spiritual life of a community and for the more than human, you have to think like other beings and you have to use that muscle. So, you know, for example, um, Taliesin has changed into all these many different um, beings until, and, and it's only at the end of this process of transspecies alchemy that he can possibly create poetry. And so I always think that's an important um, place to locate ourselves, which is we learn to be human by thinking like other beings. That, you know, the best example is Merlin. Merlin is the um, advisor of kings and kingdoms, but he doesn't get that advice from the world of, of men. He gets it by going mad, by losing his sense, his rational mind, and going into the forest to run with pigs and with deer. And so he's always stitching together those two worlds. He's the ecotone between them, that fertile boundary where the most biodiversity lives, you know, that place, the hedge, he's the hedge intelligence. And so I love to just gift that idea that if we are going to be storytellers, creators, visionaries, we're going to need to learn to think like other beings and practice a kind of kaleidoscopic empathy that will necessarily fail that, you know, science uses anthropomorphism as an injunction against caring about other beings. It's like, you know, don't pretend they're human. But if you actually look at many other cultures, anthropomorphism is a way of creating care, of trying to think like other beings and extend your life into their life and then receive their life in return. Um, and so, yeah, I think right now we see, especially in the age of social media, an, an age of social media that is working problematically along with an increasing sense of social instability and uncertainty. People want stable value systems and they want figures who tell them what to do. And so we see the rise of a lot of, you know, charismatic personalities and gurus who uh, purport to have some kind of certainty. They say, I'm a life raft in the middle of the storm. But the truth is that the real life raft is not certainty, but an ability to improvise with uncertainty and with other beings, beings you can't necessarily totally understand. And so I'm always telling people, your best teacher is probably not a human being. It's probably the animal, the plant, the invasive species that's right outside your door, who are moving in ways that are outside the dominant anthropocentric paradigms. They may have the best information on how to combat capitalism and colonialism, not another human being who's already been inculcated with these concepts. So for me, I, I think I had different seasons of different beings. At the start of quarantine, it was very certainly woodchucks, groundhogs. Um, they have many different names, whistle pigs in the South, um, Southwest in America. Um, and they did not feel sexy. Like it took me a long time to acknowledge that this was probably my teacher. Like I, I was at a turning point in my life. A lot of stories had broken down and I think I wanted an eagle or a coyote or something that felt, you know, really, um, uh, charismatic, but I would go to my sit spot and, or I would go anywhere because they would arrive wherever I was and a woodchuck would come and it would stand on its hind legs. Eventually I was feeding them. It was really, really funny. And they are an incredibly somatically intelligent being, but not in a way that is elegant or graceful. They have great, 
you know, 1920s physical comedy charm, you know, um, like these, like, like, like these early slapstick movies, they have like Charlie Chaplin charm and they dive in and out of the ground. And so I was learning from, from them how to release a kind of performativity and how to get back into my playfulness. But it was months of this. And then I was driving home in the middle of the storm on a highway. And I saw this soaking wet woodchuck that was stuck at the dividing line that would not be able to make it either way across the highway without getting hit. And without thinking, it was like all of these months of woodchucks and woodchuck encounters had primed me to not think and to just act in this moment. I threw my car into park, jumped out in the rain and the, the wild weather, put my arms out and the woodchuck jumped into them which is the craziest moment. Wild animals don't do that. It was, it felt so divinely orchestrated. And I ran it across the highway and then helped it escape into the forest. And I could have been hit by cars. People were screaming at me. It was an insane thing to do. It's not something I would typically do necessarily, but I had been in mentorship and keyed to this animal and it had prepared me for this moment. And I was thinking, what if my life was about that moment? What if it's not about any kind of grand um, gestures I do, but about placing me in the right moment as a side character at the right time in a story that is not mine? Yeah, I love that story. And it's so true. I think we're often, again, conditioned to be the lead character of, yeah. uh, of the show all the time and with all the other human characters and I love that idea and it's just so beautiful that moment where the woodchuck jumped into your hands like that trust oh you're here to help me that's just beautiful oh, well I you've written some wonderful poetry and one that really stood out to me especially because a lot of the work I've been doing has been with women reconnecting to their cycles and I'm just enchanted in general by this deepening we can do with our cycles and with rewilding ourselves back into deeper kinship with the mystery of life, the cycles of life. And you've written your poem, Menstrual Ode, and I was wondering if you'd be happy to read oh, it. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, maybe just share some of your own reflections of how you've rewilded yourself with the landscape. Well, I love that you're bringing up cycles because no one has ever asked me to talk about that. And it's something that I work with so intensely. Let me see, is this, yeah, here, let me read this, menstrual ode. Here is a cup of what I can spare, slipped pith, core of moon, liquid ember, the food of me I choose to feed generously to the farrow, pour into the mountain-shadowed field as a prayer for the coming springtime. I'll lie in the thimbleweed, turn my head to the side and say, this field is my body. This day lily shivers with my blood. These puffballs enclose a fairy ring because I am plenty. I am enough. I am a valley stream dispersing red snow melt, my own completed seasons here, a handful of womb, a room full of anemones, a rainstorm of rusted light shards of rainbow, a sword of soft pink wine, back into the coil of soil and fungal thread that weaves forward the footprints of my future dance. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think that my favorite medicine, the my favorite temporality is the clock of my womb and the clock of my uterus. And as someone who I got very life-threateningly ill my genetic illness kicked in when I was 16 and eating and taking care of myself became extraordinarily difficult. And I, my weight would drop really, really low. And I lost my period. I had loved my period. When I first got my period, I was born into a kind of neo-pagan, very nature-based animistic um, community in Woodstock, New York. And, you know, I had a new moon ceremony. It felt like the most magical experience. And so in a certain way, I, I really got the best initiation into bleeding. Um, I, you know, there wasn't any shame attached to it. It was the most magical experience. Um, and so I loved I, it's, it's interesting because I had terrible endometriosis that runs in the family. So I'd get extraordinarily ill with my period. 
And yet I also realized it as a necessary punctuation in my life. It always felt like that moment when I was, it was a hard stop. No matter what I was doing, I needed to come back into my body. And my body was going to force me to do that no matter what. Um, and I loved it. And I would, you know, feed my blood to the ground, to the earth, to the trees. Me and my friends charted our periods. We loved them. But then when I got really sick, I lost my period. And I lost my period for almost six years, completely, no period. And it was as if time stood still. It was as if time didn't happen. And I felt as if my, it's interesting, my intuition, my, my ability to understand what my body thought was dampened. Um, it, I, it's so fascinating. It's like it's a kind of internal compass got misdirected when I wasn't having those hormonal and lunar um, uh, cascades in my body. Um, and it was only when my period started up again, after so much work trying to get it back, that I suddenly realized that I re my creative process is so deeply tied to my cycles that there was a way in which I could never fully tap into that energy when I wasn't bleeding. And I, I, I generally have my best thinking two days before my period. And it's so I've mapped it for years now. Now that it's back, I've been mapping it. And I can begin to understand those cycles and work with them. Say, okay, this is the, that period of time. This is a moment when I need to take a break from other people. And I really need to go into the primal hut of my own body and see what, what, what's burning in the hearth. Wow, thank you so much for everything you're sharing. Uh, I, our stories feel quite parallel in terms of huh. the ages that the autoimmune stuff was showing up and yeah, the affecting the cycles and things like that. I have an autoimmune condition, it's Graves' disease, so it's yeah. thyroid related. And also, yeah, losing immense amount of weights when I was at that point too. And you've written of healing happening through relationship and how mycelium represents what your body needs. So as someone with an autoimmune condition and aware of how increasingly common it is for our bodies to speak in this way, especially in women, I'd love you to shed some light, if you'd be happy to, on your healing process and how you find solace in the soil. Hmm. So right now I'm really, I'm finishing a book about what it means to have an incurable illness or trauma or, or, or these diagnoses that don't complete, that exile you from a, nor a normative um, narrative uh, arc of being sick, struggling with that, and then healing. Um, what, what happens when you can't heal, when you can't complete something? Um, when you have to live with it in an uncomfortable and tricky way. And so I, I think that I want to problematize healing these days and say that, that the whole body, the healthy body is a ghost that haunts us, that renders our bodies deviant. <laughs> and that in a lot of ways, people who are incredibly sick are the healthiest. They are the ones who are most conscious of what their body is saying, that are most conscious about what, what they eat and how they live. And so I want to problematize ideas of health and healing and also healthism as this idea, um, this apparatus of capitalism that says that health is the responsibility financially and practically of the individual. And it happens inside that atomized self um, when the truth is that unwellness is produced by entangled systems of oppression. If you, you know, heal a sick fish and throw it back into a poison ocean, what are you really doing? <laughs> um, and I think that's the exposome. That's the environment that we're all working with, that you could heal the internal environment. But if the exposome is toxic, you're going to get sick again. So I have an incurable genetic um, connective tissue disease that causes autoimmunity, um, incredibly intense vascular issues, all of these other um, side diagnoses. And of course, I also have a legacy of early trauma. So I, I can see perhaps this manifested in this extreme way because of that. And I can see all of the different um, connections there, but not be able to have them deliver me to any kind of health or completion. I can see the network, but I, there's no destination. And so I think for me, when I received my diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, when I was 22, I had been obsessed and in love with fungi. 
and mycorrhizal systems for years, years, like pretty much my whole life, I'd loved mushrooms and fungi. And I realized I had a insufficiency of connective tissue in my own body that was never going to be cured. But I could relax my idea about where healing happens. What if it doesn't just happen in my body? What if it happens in my relationships, in my network of kin? And what if the wound in me is a doorway out of an anthropocentric narrative of wellness into a more culpable and complicated interspecies collaboration? Um, and so that was really a mo the moment when I wedded myself to fungi and particularly mycorrhizal fungi. I thought, okay, I will help the connective tissue of the soil if I can't properly fix my own. I mean, I think we all right now have some version of that in our lives where there's some aspect of us that is difficult, some kind of physical malfunction, some kind of mental weather that we can use actually as a compass out of our own individual sorrow and into, you know, hospicing other species, collaborating with other species who are also suffering. I absolutely love that answer. It reminded me of how much I want to have so many conversations with so many people to explore this redefining of the word healing or the notion of healing, what it is to have a deepening and expansivity into our experience that doesn't have to have the baggage of being broken or needing everything to be fixed. I'm really curious about your own experience. Um, what was what was the descent into illness like for you? How did you manage that? What has been helpful? Where are you right now? Mm, yeah, it's been a it's been a long and winding road, which has also guided me to many beautiful spaces and some deep angst as well. The real tension for me is dancing between our societal pressures and demands for productivity and for a very fast pace, for a rhythm that just simply does not suit my body and dancing between that and what my body needs, which is spaciousness, which is community and joy and slowness. That's been challenging because sometimes when symptoms flare up, I, I have to slow down. I have to stop. I think so many people are experiencing this now, whether it's just what we call burnout or any kind of symptom that's manifesting. There's just anxiety, stress. I mean, stress is disease and we have to slow down and create more space and come back to the wisdom of the earth, to the wisdom of our bodies and that can be really frustrating for me. Sometimes I can get very angry at the system that's been prescribed. I can get very impatient. And I can also feel, I can, you know, there is a tendency sometimes to feel a victim, to feel really isolated. Another area of tension has been in the past, which I've remedied by forming friendships and community who understand. But the, t the tension in the past is when it's an autoimmune condition, it's not so visible. And not that I'd at all wish myself to have something more visible, but there has been difficulty in people understanding and relating and empathizing with with my experience. And that's um, ma manifested in some challenging moments, actually. So the importance of community and friendship with people who really understand the complexity of what it means to, to be in disease <laughs> um, is so important. I have so many friends at this point who have varying degrees of illness and um, complexity in their bodies, in their soma. And I think that I was talking to a friend of mine the other day on a hike. We were talking, and he has very serious late-stage Lyme disease. And just talking about if the earth is out of its window of tolerance, if the earth is trying to correct so much imbalance, it makes sense that us as extensions of that 
Gaian body, of that biospheric body, are also experiencing physical dysfunction. That it makes perfect sense. That in a certain way, illness is the most rational response mm. to what's happening in our extended body. That doesn't make it easy. And in fact, oftentimes it is the hardest thing of all. But I also want to problematize this idea that the well body is the natural body. That actually the most natural bodies are the ones that are letting themselves sympathetically understand what the earth is feeling. Absolutely. I mean, that's been a big process of mine and just bearing witness to the people I have been working with. I've worked with a lot of young people with cancer, for example, because I yeah. also had cancer when I was 20. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's been like this real kind of riddle and unfolding. And I I do the, the pattern. Can we slow down? Yeah. Can we, can we, can, no, because I you're a real person and I think that it's important. I want, how did you deal with that? How, how did that pivot in your life? How did you survive? Where are you now with that? Well, I found out right after I had graduated from performing arts school and I'd moved to London and I wanted this big career and telling stories and being in theatre. And so finding out was terrifying. It was stopping me from that path. And at the same time, I sort of took it in my stride of, okay, this is my story. This is a part of my story and there's a reason I'm going through this. And I could feel simultaneously that that was a coping mechanism. I needed that sense of heroine's journey, that sense of story and a sense of of the future, my future self telling it one day. And the whole time I feel like my future self was by my side. I was in constant conversation with her. Or maybe it was an ancestor, maybe it was my future self, I don't know. But there was one moment in hospital where they had removed the tumour and they'd used an epidural to help with the pain management. And I I couldn't feel my legs for a whole day. And within that 24 hours, the nurses kept coming to check and spraying the numb spray and seeing if I could move my legs. And I could tell by their faces that something wasn't right. And it became clear that they weren't actually sure if the sensation was going to come back in my legs. There was just something not good. And in those dark moments of the bleeping, chaotic hospital ward, I felt a strong presence by my side, whether an ancestor or myself. I was being transmuted images of running through a meadow field and feeling my feet on the ground. And I just knew that I was going to experience that again one day. I just had to. So it has been an initiation and I could feel this sense of you're going to be okay and, and this is going to help you relate to others. This is going to help you support others in some way. And you need to go through this, but it's not clear as to why yet. And, you know, whether that's a, a self-comforting story or not, it worked. It pulled me through. And this notion of us being a part of the earth body, and of course, if the earth body is feeling dis-ease, it's going to manifest in our bodies. are all the same things. We're ecosystems within ecosystems. It's natural to experience disease in the body when our world is in crisis. And um, yeah, that really, that really resonates. And I can really recognize the little girl I was who wanted to entertain, who wanted to bring joy into spaces that weren't always okay. I was a sensitive child and I did take on a lot of the intensity of of my early life and I'm sure that's partly why um, these things manifested as they did. That's such a powerful story Veronica thank you for sharing. I I also the thing that really hit me was this idea of your future self midwifing yourself through this experience because that's what I've done. I often call it the guardian angel of my own self um and i love this i you know there's more and more studies that are showing that human sensory experience of time is perhaps decoupled from the actual way that time happens um and that perhaps the future refluxes into the present and pulls us forward you know process philosophy offered north whitehead um but it is something i think about a lot in terms of you know when i'm feeling particularly happy or warm i send it back to myself and i think that it's those moments that have saved me in the past and moments that I'm has been saved recently I know that it's my future self pulling me forward so to hear you have also had that experience felt really powerful 
Mm, well, thank you for the invitation to share. And I love that that's a thread of experience for you too. I wonder what it says about the human psyche and our ability to really, yeah, exist in nonlinear ways. I want to get to your book, The Flowering Wand, rewilding the sacred masculine where you're inviting the masculine mythic and religious archetypes into more nuanced, complex ways of dealing with trauma, growth and self-knowledge. And this beautiful work to rewild the masculine in regards to our collective healing and psychic evolution. What is the change that is driving you towards? What is the collective perspective you hope to invoke with this book? Mm, with this book, I think this book stems, I never would have ordered it off the menu. It's what I always joke that I had written this long historical fiction novel about Mary Magdalene and ecological ecofeminist, ecofeminist um, re reimagining of the gospels. And then quarantine hit, the publishing industry collapsed. There was all sorts of reshuffling. And I, I wrote this book in dialogue for free on social media with a growing um, readership. Um, in this kind of very risky collaborative way. But I wrote it to stay alive. I was experiencing extraordinary physical dysfunction. I was quarantining alone. I, my fiance had left after a miscarriage right before the pandemic began. I received all this horrible news from my doctor. I was in this moment where I needed something to reawaken that vitality within me. And I had totally given up on publishing or ever having a book of mine published. So this book comes out of this life-saving effort that, um, and also out of a collaborative communal act of storytelling, because so many other people were giving me advice and sending me resources. And I just want to honor that, that fact is I never would have planned to write a book about the masculine. <laughs> but I think what, what I'm trying to open up with this book is a conversation. I don't want it to be a monologue. I don't want it to be seen as a complete project. It's the first chapter, hopefully, in a much longer polyphonous exchange of many different archetypes and myths and perspectives. The truth is that it's never healthy to have one eat one type of food or to live one type of story. You know, ecosystems are resilient in as far in as much as they are um, biodiverse, that there are many different connectivities, many different species, and there are different tides of um, fruiting and decaying and movement. And so I think the same can be true for our um, uh, identity categories. Masculinity has been conflated with patriarchy, but that's only one story. And it's not been a very nourishing story for people who identify as male or masculine. And so I kind of thought, are there other archetypes? Were there better ones? And can we compost them with modern philosophy, with poetry, with science, with fungal um, science? And so it was a it was a risky experimental um, gesture. I wasn't sure if it was going to work. But people are arriving with their gods, with their archetypes, with their compost heaps. And I'm beginning to feel like, yes, this is the party I wanted. It's not just my voice. So this book is really just trying to invite in the voices that have not been allowed to speak. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited to read your book. I actually can't express how excited I am. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot to hear. It's goofy. I oftentimes say it's it's the most earnest version of me. There's just it's it's absolutely I, I sometimes say it's my John O'Donohue center. It's like, you know, I'm just trying to be as like authentic as possible. I read John O'Donohue's Anam Karat at a point in my life when I was experiencing some pretty intense suicidal ideation. I was really, really sick. There seemed like there were no options. It really felt like one of those moments where you're at the end of the road. And that book was so simple, yet so incredibly empathic and genuine that it just picked me up by the scruff of the neck and saved my life. Mm. And I, it, it, you know, there are books in my life that have saved my life that have made me want to do the same thing. Um, I, I want to write books that are not, you know, intellectually um, complex. I want to write books that are medicinal. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that so deeply. The, the process from which that book was born, I think it's, it's an astounding story and 
you know, there's not many writers I turn to, but there's moments where I feel so low that I just need to, I just need those writers. Is there a book or a poem that has saved your life? There's definitely books or writers who speak to my soul in dark moments. And that is Clarissa Pinkola Estes, um, Francis Weller, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Mm, oh, Francis Weller. Yeah, that's another person who is absolutely without any armor, just going to take their 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 most genuine pith and give it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. An extraordinary and, writer. Yeah, and then I suppose I'm... Of the Great Cosmic Mother, it's, it's not so much. I love that book yeah. so much. Yeah, that's also book. one that just sort of tears me out into the bigger picture and the bigger myth of all time. And um, yeah, and also I've you know been reading Adrian Marie Brown recently and I just feel like, yes, okay, I'm finding the people that speak the language of my soul and it it's so deeply nourishing. I have a little feeling that your book is going to be on that list. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I oftentimes say, you know, if it saves your life to write a story, it will probably save someone else's life. And I think that we live in an age when we think of art as somehow being this like decorative ornamental mm-hmm. experience. But the truth is that art making is one of our most innate sensibilities. And, you know, write, write your urgency, write your emergency. We are, we are in desperate times and we need to write the stories that are um, vital. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, and also the importance of story and myth, you know, because I, I think of the word vital and I immediately picture this kind of like, yes, yeah, so they have to be rational. They have to be about climate change. And it's like, no, I think the, the imagination is in crisis. And so, yeah, the use of imagination is so important. And you've got just wonderful course content with Advaya. Is it Advaya or Advaya? Advaya. Advaya. Um, could you give a glimpse into Rewilding Mythology, which you've been running? Yeah. I'm, I, yeah I'm particularly curious about the queer ecology stance with the class Lycanized Lovers Rewilding Romance with Symbiosis. I'm so intrigued. Oh, yeah. We, 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 we just had um, my good friend and one of my favorite thinkers, Dr. Patricia Kashian on, and also another good friend, Andreas Weber, um, to talk about queer ecology as this way of challenging these cultural normativities that um, oftentimes are not very well suited to the entangled sexy realities of ecosystems and and biological life. Um, And that if we pretend like these cultural dualisms are somehow scientific, they begin to really narrow what's possible, what futures we can imagine and co-create. So queer ecology is an incredible frame for me, especially as someone who... um, you know, queer means off-center and ecology comes from the Greek word for home. So it's an off-center home. And for someone who's always felt out of kilter with other people's bodies, with other people's sexualities, it's queer ecology has been an incredibly beautiful home for me, especially as um, twinned with eco-sexuality. This idea that, you know, as a survivor of trauma, it wasn't necessarily safe for me to explore my sexuality with other human beings. But it was something I could really tap into with landscapes, with rivers, with meadows, and I could feel my whole organism opening up to a sensuality that was um, was not necessarily paired to the sexual trauma I had experienced. So I think queer ecology, there's just so much inside queer ecology that can be a helpful reframe right now because it challenges our, our ideas of what's normal. And it makes us realize that a lot of the paradigms we take as somehow being fact are actually produced by systems of oppression. Um, yeah, so I that that class in particular was so amazing having this kind of erotic um, microbiological perspective from Andreas Weber, who's done incredible works with poetry and um, cellular life. And then Patricia Kashian, who is an authority in queer mycology and looking at mycology as being this queer discipline that interrupts our ideas of selfhood and individuality and symbiosis and parasitism. So yeah, what an amazing time. And that's really just like what I'm trying to do with this course, which is to show that there, you know, myths are maps of relationships in place. 
that a, a myth is a fruiting of a specific place that, you know, oftentimes we're looking at gods and goddesses, but they're personified elementals. We're looking at narrative drama, but what it really is, is information about when to harvest these berries so you don't get diarrhea, you know, and but we live in a time of deracinated myths myths that have been uprooted from their place, their context, from their social climate. And so they no longer make sense. And yet they still operate. And they operate in conjunction with colonialism, which is you take a myth and you uh, you press it onto a people and an ecosystem that it's not suited to. So there are myths of capitalism, myths of Christianity that have been uprooted, that have decided who lives and who dies. So this course is really taking science, fermentation, cooking, um, anthropology, storytelling, poetry, it's coming from every different angle and saying, can we compost these problematic deracinated myths? Can we plant them back in their original context and understand what they were trying to do? And can we use that, that soil, that composted soil to grow something that might be more freshly adapted to our current circumstances? And so it's, yeah, it's, I, it's been an incredible buck and all. You know, as someone who writes a lot about Dionysus, this has felt like a Dionysian celebration where everybody has brought their passion. Like everyone who's come to talk has been so passionate about the species, the being, um, the process that they're involved in. And it's felt incredibly enlivening. And I'm honored to have been able to um, be the connective tissue that made it happen. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, again, I really relate with the exploring sexuality with the meadow and the river (laughs) yeah um is it available to purchase after the release dates after the last session it will be closed because it will be closed because it will be out of date and in oral culture you understand that every time you resurrect a story you're freshly adapting it to circumstances that oral culture never grows brittle because it's always in the breath in the relationships um, and adapting. Written word, the written word can become fossilized and break down easily. So this has been an organism in time and it has been very adapted to this particular moment, but I don't think it will necessarily be suited to six months from now. You know, it will be closed until it begins again and we reassemble again with our new thoughts and our new ideas. And what can we expect from the Madonna secret that's coming out, your other book? I had an atypical upbringing, which is my parents write about the history of religion and spirituality. And, you know, my dad was an ex-Buddhist monk. My mom had converted to Catholicism and left it for a kind of pagan animistic experience. And so I I grew up in a compost heap of theologians, rabbis, Theravudan Buddhist monks, eco-anarchists, all sorts of interesting people. And so, and also half of my family are Jewish, Israeli Jews. So I was raised with a very interesting kaleidoscopic experience of what spirituality and religion could be. So my way into the Jesus story was not through a Christian upbringing, but more through a, a, um, through my Jewish family looking back at Christianity and how it had damaged Judaism and been a direct um, opponent of Judaism. And, um, also through these different lenses, these, you know, different spiritual lenses. And so, I always thought of it as a tragedy, not as, as a miracle. And I thought, how does this Galilean storytelling healing teacher get co-opted by the very empire that assassinates him, who then fetishizes death, which then obscures the radical anti-imperial environmental teachings that he was trying to um, disseminate? And I thought, what a complicated moment right there. And then as someone who loves storytelling and historical fiction, I've always wanted to to revivify the female voices and the bird voices and the um, vegetal voices of the time period that I think my favorite historical fiction creates a sensory scaffolding. It creates an ecosystem that's not just human. So when you walk into the text, you're walking into a fully realized world, a forest of voices. And so I had always wanted to retell that story as as a love story, as a tragedy, and also as an ecosystem where I'm actually bringing back to life the plants and animals and rivers that inspired this wild anti-imperial teacher's um, stories. Um, And it took years and years of research. I took it really, really seriously and did many other jobs to support myself while I was writing it. 
but it's wild to think that it's done and that it might be read by other people in a wider sphere. I would say that it's not a book about Christianity. It's a book about human beings and the human beings who might have played really critical roles in that early movement. Yeah. Again, I just can't wait to read it. That's so fascinating. And I I think, yeah, I share with you this just longing to understand our mythical landscape and how it shaped us as, as beings we are today and redefining the dominant myths. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, you've been so magical to speak to. I've actually found myself feeling pretty emotional throughout this this whole conversation. Well, and- it's mutual. Um, it feels like, you know, it's one of the best parts about technology are these touchstone moments with people who have been through similar initiatory experiences, similar hardships, and then arrived in an animistic um, state of mind. So it feels important to touch in with people Mm. like you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being here with the Rooted Healing community. You can visit sophiestrand.com to explore Sophie's published works and I'd recommend that you order her book The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. Ideally at your local bookshop, get it ordered in if you're able to. Music snippets in this episode were from Chris Park and ongoing music contributions from Mike Howe. And I'd like to continue the call out to musicians who would like to feature their music on the Rooted Healing podcast. We're looking for contributions and we'll always credit and link to your music. We have a few spaces left at Earth Medicine, our ceremonial psilocybin retreat in the Netherlands in April. And keep your eyes peeled for ancestral offering. Do sign up to our newsletter if you haven't already. We seldomly send emails, but when we do, it's usually a beautiful opportunity to gather and with early bird rates or special subscriber discounts. We have our dream temple at the spring equinox on the 17th to the 18th of March. It's an all-night gong bath with soundscapes and mythic imagination and really tapping into this ancient memory of sacred sleep temples, which Sarah Jane talked about so beautifully in the podcast previously in the Ancient Dream Mysteries episode. How can we enter these liminal states where the whole body becomes ecstatic? This is something I've personally experienced quite a lot of in the hypnagogic state. And so to have the gong to support that and to create a ceremonial setting for sacred sleep, for our healing, that's our intention with Dream Temple. So we're really excited. This is our first one. Do go and find your tickets. That's at rootedhealing.org slash dreamtemple. Head to rootedhealing.org to learn more about our work and upcoming gatherings. We have a free day-long ceremonial gathering for the summer solstice on June 21st. Thank you so much, everyone who's signed up already. I'm so excited to meet with you all. And this is in Dorset on the beach. And we'll be doing a lovely ceremony there. So check that out too. And it would be lovely to meet you and do something rather wild and outrageously immersive and elemental celebrating such a potent moment of the year. If you'd like to officially support and subscribe and become a patron, head to patreon.com slash rootedhealing, where you can sign up from £1 a month to access a rich, growing archive of resources to accompany these stories and conversations. Thank you deeply, those of you who've already signed up. You're helping me with the running costs of the podcast, and my goal is to have enough patrons to afford professional audio production, because I'm spending far too long doing it. And that's why I've had to slow down recently, by the way, kind of bringing it down to one a month which it would be nice to pick the pace back up again but it just takes up so much time so your support is deeply appreciated please don't forget to rate and review the show it's a joy to connect and hear how these episodes are landing for you i'm your host Veronica stanwell thanks for listening Mm